Merry Christmas, Three Rivers Church. Thank you. Christmas is not one day, it's our entire season that we have the joy of celebrating and, and what a beautiful thing that is. Um, Advent 2016, today we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1 to 5. Pastor Jim was going to be preaching this morning, but he has shingles. And so uh, Pastor Jim and I chatted yesterday morning and I said, I got you covered, my friend. And so uh, these guys are graciously filling in and giving me a break. And uh, and I'm grateful for that. And uh, and so when Pastor Jim called me yesterday, he was sad that he couldn't do this. Even sadder, I think that he's got shingles. You guys pray for Pastor Jim. Um, and so uh, I got after it yesterday and, and got myself up to speed. And and uh, as you guys know, I never tire of preaching God's word. So um, what a joy to share Isaiah two one to five with you today. If I was going to put a banner over this passage uh, in our theme. Our thesis, our our point, the point of this passage would be Jesus, our present and our future hope. Jesus, our present and our future hope. So in order to equip you to study and and read this season, uh, I I want to share with you a little introduction that will help you. I think as you read through the passages this season, uh, as the guys at the other campus are studying the same passages, that we um, will have some added insight and coming to the gospel from the Old Testament text. And so if you'll bear with me for just a moment, I'm going to, before we jump into Isaiah 2, I want to set it up so that as we're coming out of Isaiah 2, 1 to 5, you're going to see not just this guy's he's making stuff up, I want you to see how to mine the gospel from the text of the Old Testament. Advent uh, is the Latin word for coming. And so this is the time in the Christian calendar when we look back And we rejoice that Jesus has come. But it's also a season that we look forward to in the great hope that Jesus is returning. He has come and he is coming again. And we're going to see this in the first part of our passage today and why that's important. This Advent, we're going to be studying through certain passages of Isaiah to remember his coming, but also to look forward to reset, chose that language on purpose, our hopes for the coming kingdom, that our hopes would not be set on the kingdoms of this world, nor temporary inferior joys, but the superior joy of the kingdom. A quick note for you about the Old Testament and its prophets. This may be the most key thing I'll say to you today, because I think it will be teaching you how to fish, not just giving you a fish, as the old adage goes. Jesus taught us that He is the interpretive key to the whole Old Testament. Jesus is the interpretive key to the whole Old Testament. He said, John 5, 39, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness... About me. That, that's monumental. That's a game changer when it comes to reading and studying the Old Testament. Luke 24, 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, in his post-resurrection state with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So as we look to the text, I want you to keep your senses tuned to Jesus. 
Jesus' kingdom, Jesus' rule, His person, His work. The New Testament's reading of the Old Testament is how we are to read it. Okay? Now, this isn't Old Testament survey and New Testament survey class. I used to teach those courses and we would spend almost an entire semester plowing through how to do that practically as we worked through those. So I don't have a semester's amount of time this morning. i got roughly 35 minutes. So I'm just going to drop that little nugget on you. How the New Testament reads the Old Testament is how we are to read it. You don't read David as a character study on what to do morally or what not to do morally. That is a misuse of David. Jesus is the interpretive key to the whole Old Testament. The prophets, and because we're looking at Isaiah, all of Advent, this Christmas season, I want to share with you this, and then we're going to jump right in very quickly. The prophets of the Old Testament, they contain three main ingredients, okay? And on the blog, MitchJolly.com, you can see these here for you. They're laid out for you. Um, and if you're, most of you are probably interwebs savvy, and your phone is interwebs capable, I know it's internet, but I like saying interwebs. So if you're new to me, like this guy's, this guy's ignorant. I really know it's internet, but I like saying interwebs. I think it's fun. So on the interwebs, your phones are interwebs capable. You can go to MitchJolly.com and see all the notes. The prophets contain three main ingredients. Number one, they address the covenant breaking of the people. Through indictment and accusation. Just see Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah spends the first chapter bringing the accusation of how they have violated the covenant of Sinai. The law. What God had laid down for them. How he revealed to them them his good news that they are his people. And this is how they are to act as though they are his people. And then secondly, the prophets warn about the consequences of their folly. And they speak about... Judgment that is coming and judgment that will still be coming based upon their breaking of the covenant. And then third, they remind the people of God's covenant faithfulness. God's faithful. He hasn't broke the covenant. He's always been faithful. And that he is also going to act in some conclusive way to bring about his purposes. And so the prophets, because they're speaking from God to time and space, like Isaiah was preaching to a people in history, in time and space, right? And concerning God's eternal plan, have an immediate focus on the present when it was written. So when Isaiah spoke these words, the people who received them had an immediate focus and an application. But because Jesus is the interpretive key and the fulfillment of everything written in the Old Testament, we don't look to the Old Testament for a mere historical study of what Israel did. That is not what it's there for. Okay? Does that make sense? We look to it with its intended future fulfillment in Jesus and His future full reign when He completes His mission. There's a dynamic nature to the Old Testament. And it's these latter two that we're most concerned with when we study and teach from the Old Testament. So how does this passage predict, prepare for, reflect, or result from Jesus' person and work? So with that in mind, let's look at Isaiah 2, 1 to 5. We'll read it, and we'll pop out some observations. What do we see? What does it mean? And make some application, okay? Isaiah 2, 1 to 5. 
the word, uh, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah, Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain, by the way, just can I drop this on you? This is fun. Just be scholarly nerdy for a moment. John goes to great lengths in John chapter 1 for you to understand that when he says, when you're reading the Old Testament, the word that Isaiah saw, and then he then he tells you what it is. He, he writes it down. You, you understand? This is what he saw and he wrote it, right? John goes to lengths to make sure you understand that that word is epitomized in Jesus, who he calls the Word. This is why Jesus is the interpretive key to the Old Testament. So, what Jesus gave Isaiah, Jesus now comes and epitomizes in his very person. Which is why we are going to be taught in the New Testament to preach the Word. Because as we preach the Word, we are properly exegeting, expositing the Word. We are preaching Yes, thank you, we're preaching Jesus. Whether we say Jesus explicitly with our mouth, when we are preaching the Word, we are preaching Jesus. Which is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, when I was among you, and, and, and you read Acts, he was there for like two and a half years, I determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That doesn't mean that every time Paul got up to teach, he, he preached a salvation message. That's not what he was doing. He, he was preaching from the book... The Word, because the Word rightly exposited is the preaching of Jesus who is the Word. Are you, you there? Make sense? So when we come to the text, this is the Word. This is, this is all about Jesus. Right? You with me? Alright. The Word that Isaiah, the son of... So what is Isaiah writing about here? Jesus. Alright? The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So, in Isaiah 2, 1 to 5, what do we see? What do we observe? What does it mean? And then what are we going to do with it? Number one, verse 2. Isaiah looked forward to see Jesus as God's presence established and exalted. Isaiah looks forward to see Jesus as God's presence established and exalted. First observation here in verse 2 under that banner is it shall come to pass in the latter days. So what he is seeing and writing about shall come to pass in the latter days. Now what you need to know according to Hebrews 1-2, when Jesus came first, the last days, the end of history were inaugurated. You need to understand that. 
So when people talk about the last days biblically, we're talking about the inauguration of the end of time almost 2,000 years ago when Jesus came and took on flesh and dwelt among us. Which is why Jesus, which starts making sense when Jesus talks about living like His return is imminent, because it is. On the scope of salvation history, Jesus' return is very near because it's the end. We have reached the end of history. And so when Isaiah says it shall come to pass in these latter days, we are there. We are there. Okay? That the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. So in these latter days of which we are here because Jesus has come and inaugurated those days with the coming of his kingdom. The mountain of the house of the Lord is to be established. And this mountain of the house of the Lord is none other than Jesus himself. This is important. John 1, 14. Jesus is said to be, by John, the one who came, the Word, the living Word, who, what? I'm going to use the word he uses, tabernacled among us. And we beheld His glory. Glory as from the only one from the Father, full of grace and truth. Look at John 1.14 with me for just a moment. I want you to, this is huge. This is huge. As you read the New Testament, it's very important that you pick up on the language that they're using, the references that they're quoting, and understand how they're interpreting the Old Testament. In John 1.14, he says, The Word, that is, Jesus, became flesh... And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory is from glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This word dwelt is this little word that means to pitch a tent, literally to tabernacle. Does anybody remember anything that happened in the Old Testament when they came out of Egypt that they did? What did God tell them to do? Pitch a tent. They called it the tabernacle. And there I will meet with you. When John uses this language to tabernacle, to pitch a tent, in English we say dwell. John is intentionally connecting Jesus to the presence of God among his people. What makes this mountain high is not that it grows in the last days. What makes it significant is that it has the temple, the tabernacle, God's presence. What makes the temple special is God. What now makes the temple obsolete is that Jesus has come and tabernacled among us. God has come to dwell among us. And after the resurrection, here's, here's, this, this is why the language of Paul is important. God now temples up in every follower of Jesus. You are that now tabernacle. Isaiah looked forward to see Jesus as God's presence established and exalted. Isaiah looks forward to the day that the eternal Son of God would come and He would take on flesh and He would come and die in our place for our sin and rise for our salvation ascend. And there He would general the great commission and take up residence in every single repentant follower of His. And Isaiah looked forward to that day. So what do we do with this? We take courage that Jesus has done what God sent Isaiah to proclaim he would do. And we rejoice that Jesus dwells in us by faith.
We're going to have an opportunity at the end of our time together to worship and respond in worship because God has fulfilled His Word. Isaiah saw that day, in these last days, when the mountain of the house of the Lord would be established, and that is none other than Jesus. And guess what? He takes residence in you today. All because of this Christmas season. We remember, we rejoice, and by the way, it only gets better. What we know now dimly, the day is coming where we will know it dimly no more, but clearly, face to face. And Revelation looks forward to that day, which that dimness is removed, and when, when, when he looks and he sees coming down out of heaven, the new Jerusalem, this, this, is, this is apocalyptic language to show us that God now comes to dwell face to face. Not just in us, but the day is coming where it will be face to face. That's what we remember and what we look forward to. Number two, verse, the second part of verse two through verse three. There's a little banner to put over it. Isaiah looked forward to see Jesus draw all nations to himself. He says this mountain will be established as the highest of the mountains. He's exalted. He's lifted up. He's the King, the Lord. And he said, it shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Isaiah looks forward to see Jesus drawing all nations to himself. John twelve thirty two, Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, you see this, Jesus doesn't preach wantonly. Jesus isn't pulling stuff out of the air. He's preaching from the text. Okay? This is why he had to walk with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and open for them, open their eyes to understand the scriptures. And he showed them everything concerning himself. So when they looked back and remembered Jesus had lifted up from the earth, the mountain of the house of the Lord be lifted up highest to be the highest. When I'm lifted, Jesus is the one that was lifted. Hmm. You see? You see? You get it? And so John records Jesus and I, when I am lifted up the earth, will what? Draw all people to myself. This is Jesus preaching from Isaiah 2. Be exalted, lifted up, and the nations will flow to me. Isaiah looked forward to the day Jesus would draw all nations to himself. The nations come to be taught Jesus' ways. Out of Jesus' kingdom goes his law, his word. Jesus, the crucified and risen king, is drawing the nations to himself. And we are his ambassadors to teach his word and disciple the nations. And what we also look forward to is the fact that Jesus will finally complete this work of drawing the nations to himself and teaching them. Listen, guys, this is beautiful. What do we do with this reality? Well, number one, we take heart that the gospel of the kingdom is powerful and effective. Do you notice anything here about the nations coming to the one that is lifted up that is burdensome and difficult and hard? Now, don't mishear what I'm about to say, okay? Jesus is the one in his gospel that brings power and effect upon peoples, not us. Okay? This is important. 
people will come to you and to us to hear the good news as we do His work because Jesus said that's what we are sent to do. Go disciple the nations, right? That's our task. That's our mission. Jesus said, go. There's something for you to do. Go to the nations. Preach the gospel. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. But how are they to come? Listen, this is the beautiful, glorious reality of the Great Commission. When we do God's work, Jesus has a way of drawing people to Himself. Listen... Now, your job is to preach it. You've got to speak it. You've got to act like it. You've got to do labor. And sometimes that is difficult. But drawing people to himself is not burdensome. The glorious work of walking with Jesus, Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You don't have to draw people. Jesus will draw people. You don't have to make people believe. Jesus will make people believe. You be faithful. You obey. And it says here that the nation shall flow. They, 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 will, they will come. They will come to Jesus. We're to teach His Word, the law of Christ and His kingdom. We persevere in the work because Jesus will bring it to completion. This is not a passive thing. This is actively obeying Jesus and believing He will then make that obedience effect. I got a great illustration for you because it's fresh. It's on our horizon. On December the 11th, the Colston Radical Life Group will host at the Crawford House a hangout to celebrate Christmas. And yes, we shoot guns in our Radical Life Group. We put a lot of lead down range. We have a lot of fun. But we also pray together and we study the Word together and we do life together. And on that evening, there will be three members of our people group from a city in our country living in the States who will be in Silver Creek, Georgia, who don't yet believe, celebrating Christmas with us and shooting guns. (laughs) Touchdown, Jesus. I mean, how do you explain that? How do you explain people from our country, in a very difficult place in the world, from our people group, who aren't yet believers, coming to hang out with Christians celebrating Christmas? Because we're slick? No. Jesus will cause the nations to flow to Him. And they'll come and they'll say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, that we may walk in His paths. That's cool. That's awesome. I'm very clear. We celebrate Christmas. We worship Jesus. Yes, I am a pastor. I still want to come and spend time with you. Okay. Awesome. That's, that's Jesus doing what Isaiah looked forward to him doing. Isn't that cool? It's just fun. And so you obey. You obey Jesus. And when God draws people to himself, you be faithful to preach the good news. And watch him do the awakening. Not fun. The hard part is having enough guts to obey. I'm afraid that in our context we're ashamed of the gospel. And I think we use strategy as our cop out. Well, that's not the most strategic way. Well, what is a way? Just pick one. 
Say something. Right? Just, just utter the name Jesus. Just attempt something. Christians in the West. Does that make sense? Can I just, can I, can I throw, throw you a hypothesis? Not in the notes. This is free. What if, what if the nations in their upheaval and people displaced trying to get somewhere is Jesus causing the nations to flow to him? What if? Are you ready to receive them and preach the good news? Or do you want them out? You don't belong here. Speak my language. Obey my rules. What if Jesus is the one causing them to flow? Because we say we're a bastion of the gospel. Right? We believe in Jesus. Christian nation. Then don't you want them here to obey that? No, 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 no. We don't want that. I mean, think it through, people. Be people of the book. Does that make sense? Jesus says, I'll bring them. I will draw them to me. You just disciple them. Isn't that cool? I mean, y'all look like y'all don't want to believe that. Y'all look like you don't believe that. You're like, I don't know. What am I supposed to believe? I don't know. Yes, you want Jesus to bring people to himself. And you want to preach to him. You want to disciple him. Because that's what Jesus had to do. We're people of the book. I almost dropped my Bible. I would have been ugly. Number three. Isaiah looked forward to peace on earth and goodwill among nations. Verse four. Jesus, He, He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. This is Isaiah looking forward to that time which he will again revisit in Isaiah chapter 65. John brings it up in Revelation at the end of all things. He looks forward to this moment when the nations no longer wage war. We're not there yet. That is still there. That that is still to come as Christ returns and finishes the establishment of His kingdom. But it is put here for us to look forward to. It is in the text so that we would put our hopes there. What we need to remember here is Jesus is the divine mediator among nations. It's easy to forget that. It's easy to live in fear and terror because we look at the upheaval of the nations and wonder, oh my. But we remember that He will be the judge between nations. Daniel chapter 4, verse 28 and following. Just humor me for a moment and turn to Daniel 4. I promise not going to get caught up there. But I want you to see this glorious reality of, of Jesus being the mediator of the nations. This is Nebuchadnezzar. And his season of humbling. And you see particularly verse 32. God takes the kingdom away from him because of his arrogance. And he says, And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men 
and gives it to whom He will. You better wrestle with that. You better figure out how to incorporate that into your daily existence. Jesus is the mediator of nations. He's the mediator of kings. He determines who gets raised up, who gets set down. Not you. Fancy not yourself sovereign. He's the creator of nations. He's the mediator of nations. He gives to one and he takes from another. And Isaiah says here, he will be the one who settles the disputes. And Jesus will one day bring final peace. Now, just, this isn't in your notes, but I think it's worth noting that the nations don't disappear in the kingdom. We read in the Revelation, the apocalypse. We read that they will bring their riches and their wealth to Jesus as an offering. Jesus created the nations. He has divine purpose in the nations. And they will not go away. They will be brought to His purposes. This is, you've heard me say this before. You've been here long enough as we preached through Revelation several years ago. This, this changes our view of the end of all things. We have this wrong, unbiblical view of heaven. This idea that it's somewhere in the clouds and we're playing harps and singing songs all day. That's not created purpose in the eternal kingdom of heaven. Heaven is going to look like Eden before the fall. A new heaven and a new earth to till and work. And to bring the produce to the King of kings and Lord of lords and say, Yours, Master. We were made to work. (laughs) We were made to serve the King with no sin. Can you imagine earth redone with no sin? We don't have a framework for that. Like There's just no framework for it. The best we have is fiction. And it still falls short. This is why, this is why God, listen, God is sovereign even over the creation of fiction as a genre so that our imaginations can soar beyond this fallen created order, which is why Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. That's taken us back a few weeks. Right? It's so that we can get our eyes lifted up off of the curse and into what will be. That's awesome. He looked forward to see that that will one day be the reality. So what do we do with this? Number one, Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they are called sons of God. Jesus came and made peace by the blood of His cross. Therefore, those who make peace are like Jesus, the Son of God, and get to be sons of God. So therefore, be a peacemaker. Trust Jesus to sort out the big stuff. Peacemaking is messy. Peacekeeping is simple. Don't talk about hard stuff. Separate opposing views. Stay apart. That's peace. Keeping peacemaking is bringing together warring parties in which you may lose your life. Jesus made peace and therefore those who make peace are called sons of God. Therefore, be a peacemaker. You got to wrestle with what that looks like. You got to change possibly your worldview. That doesn't fit neatly into donkeys and elephants. It doesn't fit into a political system because it's not of this fallen, cursed order. It's the order of the kingdom of God. Number four, and finally, verse five, Isaiah invites Annie with ears to hear to walk in Jesus' counsel. Oh, house of Jacob, which, by the way, Israel, right? Jacob gets renamed Israel, right? You guys are familiar with that, right? And he is called the Son, God's Son, the Son of God. 
What did the Father say about Jesus at his baptism? This is my beloved Son. Jesus is the promised faithful Israel. That's an interpretive framework that will help you read your Old Testament too. Jesus is the faithful Israel. So when he says, O house of Jacob, that is people of Israel. If Jesus is the faithful Israel, then O people of Jesus, which would be? Thank you, us. O people of Jesus, O house of Jacob, that is Christians, those who follow the Lord. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Isaiah looks forward and he invites any who have ears to hear to walk in Jesus' counsel. Make disciples. Teach them to observe everything I have commanded you. This message was applied to guilty Israel in 740 B.C. Isaiah 1 is a call for them to renew their commitment to keeping the covenant. This message is applied to us in 2016. I put it under one simple little statement here. Love God and love your neighbor as yourselves. The summary of that covenant made possible by Jesus coming, dying, and rising. So come and walk in the counsel of the Lord. Love Him and love your neighbor as yourself. Isaiah invites us to hear that. And when Jesus says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear, He's not speaking of physical hearing. Because everybody heard him. They were standing there. But those who heard with the soul, those who, those who got it, those were the ones who followed him regardless. So three of us church, this Advent season, this Christmas season, I invite you with ears to hear to come and walk in Jesus' counsel. Love God. Wrestle with what it means to love God this season. Wrestle with what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. And I pray that those glorious two things would in a positive way haunt our next four weeks. And so I want to invite you this morning to worship. One of the ways we walk in the counsel of the Lord is by worshiping the King. Jesus gave us this little book called Psalms. And to do a summary of C.S. Lewis in the Psalms, it is though God is saying to us, worship me, worship me, worship me. And that is correct. Why? Because that's the proper object of your affection, God. And so if we're going to walk in the counsel of the Lord, His counsel is come to me and worship me. Why? Because He's the only fit object of your affection. And so, as we come to sing to Him and to delight in Him in song, as we come to enjoy Him in singing, do so recognizing that that song of worship to Him is there to prompt obedience to Him in worship as living tomorrow, this afternoon, the rest of the week, the next four weeks, the next year, the next five years, the next ten years. So as we come to sing, it's not just an isolated worship event. It is there to make much of Jesus in song, but also as a catalyst to make much of Him in everything we say and do. So would you engage in that this morning? Is He worthy? Oh, He's worthy. So let me pray for you, and the band's going to come and lead us. Lord Jesus, You are worthy to be praised.
You are glorious. You are the hill lifted up, the presence of God among us. And thank you for dwelling in us by Holy Spirit. Jesus, thank you for drawing people to yourself. Thank you for bringing end to conflict in the nations, for ruling the nations well. Thank you for the invitation to come and walk in your counsel. Now I pray that we would take that counsel to heart and make much of you. Lord Jesus, I pray that you will rule the atmosphere in this room. We pray against the effects of the evil one who would seek to dampen our enthusiasm in Christ by all manner of wormwood and all manner of little sneaky things who will screw tape things. I pray this morning, Lord, against the effects of the evil one that would hamper our delight in you. Thank you for being faithful to keep your word. Thank you for the promise to keep it in full and the coming of the kingdom in full. May you delight our hearts. Overrule anything that would dampen that. We pray, Holy Spirit, would you overrule those things. Bring forth from your people the fruit of lips that bless your name. Pray for repentance and joy and peace and righteousness. And we pray this in Jesus' name.